Let us return then to Acts chapter 4. We're going to have a broad brush look at this chapter. We're going to look at verses 1 to 31. I'm not going to isolate any particular verse. Instead, that section from verses 1 to 31 will be our text this evening. The title for our meditation is Persecution, Prayer, and Power. Persecution, Prayer, and Power. And indeed, that will be my three headings for you this evening. Persecution, prayer, and power. The last time that I was with you on the evening of the Lord's Day, we looked at the remaining part of chapter 3, and we noticed that Peter took the opportunity that after the cripple was healed, he took the opportunity of preaching to them the Lord Jesus Christ. And we reminded ourselves indeed that all of these signs, yes, they benefited the individuals in question. This man's life was transformed. But they were all signs, all the miracles that Jesus and the apostles did were all signs telling us and they're telling us about the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, if you like, as we said, Peter took what happened to this man as his text and preached and applied Christ to the crowd, telling them that they had crucified the Lord of glory. But there was grace, there was mercy. There was still time to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and that their sins would be forgiven. Well, we come, if you like, to a kind of new section for the early church. They had some success. They had at Pentecost, some 3,000 responded positively to the preaching of the Apostle Peter. But things changed, as they do. And the first time, for the first time here, the early Christian church, what happens to them? They encounter persecution. And that's the first thing I want to draw to your attention from these verses. Here we have the beginning of persecution. And this is always what happens when the gospel is proclaimed. What happens? Well, some people believe. And we know that 3,000 did. And what are we told here? That some 5,000 now men were ones who believed. So they knew and experienced great growth. And this would be a wonderful sense of encouragement for, for the apostles. Here they were, unschooled, unlearned individuals. They had no resources. They had no clout. They had no authority. They were nobodies. Yet, 
wonderful things were happening. Why? Because they were preaching the gospel and it became effectual. People began to truly believe and they were baptized. They showed their commitment to the cause of Christ. They were willing to be identified with this individual who just a few weeks before was crucified and who was rejected by the by the scribes, the Pharisees, by the religious leaders of the day, yet there were some 5,000 men, and no doubt women and children will be added to that number, and they were willing to be associated with Jesus of Nazareth, this new sect that had grown up, and therefore the disciples would be encouraged, and they went out as much as lay within their, their means, preaching Jesus and the resurrection. But what happens? The honeymoon is over. The honeymoon is over. They've had this opportunity to preach, and they've known great success, but they find here now opposition. As they spake unto the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people and preach through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. We have here the, the leaders of the temple. The Sadducees were ones who dominated the, the priestly office of the temple. The Sadducees were ones who did not believe in the resurrection. Jesus encountered them in his earthly ministry, and he dealt with them appropriately, going to Moses and the burning bush experience to teach them that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living, therefore reminding them that there is indeed a resurrection. And he was pointing out to them that they didn't really believe the scriptures that they said they accepted. The Sadducees were ones who would accept the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. It was authored by Moses, and they would say, well, we accept these books as God's word, as scripture. Well, Jesus went to that book. He went to one of that books. He went to the book of Exodus, and he proved that the resurrection was there in the scriptures that they said they accepted. And they were ones actually who believed that the Messiah had come during the intertestimonial period between the two testaments, between the, the Old Testament and the New Testament. What's, some of it's called the Maccabean period. They believed that the Messiah had actually come during that period. And therefore, they were deeply agitated that here was this humble fisherman preaching to them Jesus Christ and the resurrection, and they didn't like it. And they took them aside, and they wanted to silence them. Well, there's a very important lesson for us, probably more than one lesson, but there's certainly one lesson that's applicable to every single Christian. 
not just for the office bearer or for the minister, but for every single Christian. There's a, a point here in principle that we would be well to adapt and take notice of and factor in to our discipleship. When we embrace the Lord Jesus Christ, very often we have a honeymoon period. Very often we are high, as it were. Everything's new, new life, new friends, new things to learn, a new life altogether. And we have our honeymoon period. But soon, and sometimes sooner than we think, opposition and persecution shall come. The Lord Jesus Christ told us this. He made it very clear that when we follow him, we cannot expect an easy life. We cannot expect an easy time. After all, is it not true that the world hated Christ? And do you think the world is going to love his followers? Obviously not. Jesus tell, told us this. And therefore, this is something that we need to learn or we need to remember and we need to factor into our, our Christian walk and our Christian experience that we can expect persecution. Oh, it might not be as open as this here and it might not be as violent as many of our brethren experience, but we will know it and we must accept it and be prepared for it. But what we might find surprising, although again we should not, but sometimes we do, we find that the persecution comes from a source or sources where we would least expect to have persecution. Here they were. The apostles were in the temple. They were in God's house. They were bringing God's word. They had performed a wonderful good deed. I mean, Peter says, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man. He's saying, in effect, if we had done something wrong, if we had done something malignant or bad, then we could understand why we would we'd be taken aside. But it's a good deed we've done. This man has had his life given to him, a life that he never knew. He was over 40 years old, and he had never walked until that day when he met with Peter and John as they went into the temple. And therefore, we can expect persecution. But sometimes what might be difficult for us is when the persecution comes from sources that we should least expect it to come from. Sometimes it can come from family, friends. Sometimes it can come from professing Christians, Christians in the congregation, or Christians out of the congregation. Here it came from leaders, religious leaders who should have known better, who 
<clears throat> even if they did not believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, as is obviously clear, <clears throat> they should at least have examined what's going on here. We've never seen this done before. This has never happened to us. We cannot do this. And surely they must have, if they had any kind of decency within themselves, they should have at least examined the apostles and got to the bottom of it. Very often people talk about having open minds and they're, they're willing to examine and look at the evidence and see where it takes them. This is not the case here. The evidence is crystal clear. The evidence is that Jesus Christ is alive. The one that they crucified is indeed alive. And he performed a wonderful miracle right before their very eyes as it was. Christian then, don't be surprised if persecution comes your way. It's part and parcel of your discipleship. It's part of bearing the cross. We don't look for it. We don't court it. We don't seek to attract it. But if you're walking a consistent Christian life, and in some sense, you might be minding your own business, getting on with your calling, living out your Christian life, you will find, if that is the case, it will cause others to persecute you. Or it may be subtle, or it may be more open, but nevertheless. And don't be surprised if your, the persecution will come from your nearest and dearest, even from Christians, even from office bearers, even from those who should know much better. This is what happened here. Let us therefore not be surprised. The honeymoon period will come over. It will pass. You'll have to fight the good fight of faith, but rejoice. You don't fight it in your own strength. You fight it with the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who has said to his people, never will I leave thee nor forsake thee. He is always with his people. And he knows what goes on. He can see. He can see your difficulties. He can see your problems. He can see the persecution that's coming upon you. He can see that one who is persecuting you. He can see all of these things. And we claim that glorious and wonderful promise that he has given to us in his word. All things work together for good to them who love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. And further on, he goes on to say, we are more than conquerors. Is that not so? And we're to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Here we find the evil one stirring up religious people. And that may well be our portion. That may well be your portion. Religious people. People who know the word of God. People who attend the means of grace. People who lead worship people who are instrumental in the worship of God, may well be your chiefest persecutors. This is what happened here. 
to the poor apostles. They faced persecution. And therefore, we are to acknowledge this, realize it, be prepared for it. Yes, it may well disappoint us, but do we not have a great God? Do we not have a glorious Savior? Do we not have one who walked the way before us? We are following in his footsteps. And if we suffer for him, is it not an honor to suffer for him? Is it not a wonder? Is it not a glory? The Lord Jesus Christ, he suffered for his people. And he was willing to undertake and to undergo anything that came his way in order that he might fulfill that great task that was given to him in order to save his people. Are we going to shrink back from it? Again, we say we don't court it, but when it comes, we will again acknowledge the sovereignty of God. We will be submissive to his will. This is what's required of us when persecution comes. Well, following on then from persecution, really from verses 23 to 30, what do we find? We find prayer. They were let go. The leaders, much to their disappointment, could find no fault with Peter and John apart from the message that they were proclaiming. But the evidence was before them. This man was standing before them before this man had to be carried about. Now, after this miracle, he was with Peter and John. This was a living testimony to the reality of the miracle. And the people were in favor of the apostles. Therefore, the leaders recognized there's nothing that we can do. The evidence is overwhelming. There's no point in doing anything other than warn them that they're not to go and teach or preach in this man's name again. And of course they said, well, we cannot possibly accept this, whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So they were let go. Where did they go? Well, we're told there in verse 23, and being let go, they went to their own company and they reported, they told all that had happened to them. And this was a great incentive for the early church to gather together for corporate prayer that they might call upon the living God that they might thank him, that they might acknowledge his sovereignty in all matters, and that he might further equip them, that they would be able to go forth and to boldly declare what they had already boldly declared on other occasions. They were not to be silent. God has given them a voice, and God has given them a commission. They are the ones who were with the Lord Jesus for three years, they saw him suffer. They saw him die. 
They saw the risen Christ. They saw him being taken back up into heaven. They had seen and heard these things. And now their, their hearts were full of this, this person and his message. And they could not contain themselves. And they would not contain themselves. And they gathered together for a prayer meeting. This, indeed, is a very important lesson for any congregation. We would have dwelt a wee bit on this, actually, in the morning when we looked at Jonah and when we saw that the, the captain went to Jonah and told him to call upon the name of his God. And there is evidence there, friends, that even there, even as that ship was being tossed by the violent storm, the people were to gather together and they were to pray. Now we notice that the mariners were to call upon their false gods. They didn't know the one true and the living God. They weren't going to call upon him. But the point is, there they were in straits, Yes, we know Jonah had gone to sleep, and we could speak about that on another occasion, but there they were, and they gathered together. And there is something, friends, about gathering together for corporate prayer that we must remind ourselves about. Yes, it's good to go into the closet. It's good to be alone with the Lord. It's good to find time for our own personal devotions before the Lord. But there is something, we're not going to use the word magical, but there is a blessing when the church gathers as one. As one, with one aim, one goal in mind, and a united voice, and they cry out to the living God. And we want to encourage our people. I know it's difficult. I know we all have our agendas and we all have our businesses and we all have our, our things that we must attend to. But if we can be found in the prayer meeting, friends, we should be there. And we should be able to say our amen when we call out to the Lord that he might bless the preaching of his word. And that that word might come with boldness. And boldness is not just a, a loud or a clear voice. Boldness, friends, is something that comes from the Holy Ghost. This is not something that we can manufacture. This is a God-given gift. It is sent down from heaven upon high. What do we find here, even if we go back? When Peter was beginning to speak to them, Peter was filled with the Holy Ghost, verse 8. Then Peter filled with the Holy Ghost. He was going to address the leaders. What happened? Well, the Holy Ghost was upon him. He was filled again. And we might say he was filled again with the Holy Ghost on that occasion, maybe because the church had gathered on a previous occasion, and they had cried out for boldness. Is it not wonderful when you look at the book of Acts, and when you look at 
the letters of the Apostle Paul, how often does he say, brethren, pray for me? The most exercised Christian that the world has ever known, one who has had tremendous success wherever he went, he cries out, brethren, pray for me that utterance might be given to me, that my mouth might be opened, that it might be, that I might speak boldly of the things of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what happened here. Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is. What's, what are they talking about there? We have here possibly the summary of their prayer. We have the headings, but surely it's opening with praise, and they're praising the sovereignty of God. If there's anyone who should stand and pray and praise God, it is for his sovereignty. It is for the fact that he is ruler and overruler of all things. And this should be part of our prayer. We should praise the living God that despite the opposition of these people who were leaders and they had power, they had authority, yet there was one who was infinitely greater than, than them. And this we must remember. What are we? What's the minister? What's the office bearers? What are we as Christians? We're a poor, small company. Have we got any clout? Have we got any power? Have we got any influence? No. Does the world look upon us? Will the, will the press come to us for a, for a, a, a report or a statement upon anything that's happening in the world? Will they look upon us? No. Even today, friends, I don't know if you've noticed it, but you see what's happening in Israel and that terrible thing that's going on in Israel today. Are the press, are they going to the Church of Scotland for a comment? I haven't heard it. Maybe they have, but I haven't heard it. Have they gone even to the Roman Catholic Church? I don't think so. That's because, and of course I use the church in its widest, broadest sense there, but that's because we are regarded as no one, nobodies. We don't have a voice. We don't have opinion. We don't matter. But our God is sovereign. And when we come to pray, we're praying to a sovereign God. A God who, yes, he knows what's going on in Israel. He knows what's going on in Gaza. He knows what's going on in the White House. He knows what's going on in Beijing. He knows what's going on in your house. He knows all things. He is absolutely sovereign. Oh, friends, that we had a, a greater glimpse of the sovereignty of God. Oh, would this not fire up our prayers? For many of us, God is too small. We need to have biblical views on God. We need to let the Bible become our prayer book. 
We don't have a written prayer book. We're not going to say it's wrong to have a, a written prayer book. No, we're not going to say that at all. We're not going to criticize people. But here, what have we got? We've got the Word of God. The Word of God should furnish our prayers. We, our prayers should be saturated with the Word of God. And surely, friends, does it not say in the Word of God from page to page that the great God of heaven is the sovereign. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. That's how they began. He's the God of creation, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is. He's the God of revelation, who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, there they're going to that psalm that we've sung. They're acknowledging that God is the God of revelation and God has revealed his will to us, his people, and his will is unfolding before us. And what has happened was prophesied. He's the God of revelation. He's the God of history. The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. Psalm 2. Oh, that our prayers, friends, were saturated with these things as it was for the early church. You see, persecution, it drove them to prayer. They didn't ask that the captain of the temple and the Sadducees, that they be overturned. It didn't ask that anything ill would be done to them. They didn't ask that their enemies would be taken out of the way. They simply laid the matter before God, that he would do as he would please with them. Their only request was that they would be able to proclaim the word that was given to them. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings. Behold their threatenings. The Lord laughs in heaven when he sees the threatenings of his enemies. We say this reverently, friends, because we'll stand before him one day. But God has a sense of humor. Here, these pathetic, poor individuals, they're seeking to oppose God. And somehow they think that they have the clout to do this. Behold their threatenings. Look at them. See how, see how pathetic they are. See they're using their power when they have no real power. Because God is making a new thing here. God is building his church. They are part of the old order. 
And soon the time will come when their temple and everything that's precious to them, it shall be destroyed. Behold their threatenings. That's what they said. Lord, look at these puny people. Look at them. See what they're th thinking to do. See how they think that they, can, that they can twist the arm of omnipotence. Oh, how foolish. Oh, how foolish they are. That's what they're saying. Look at these threatenings. Behold their threatenings. And with all boldness that they may speak thy word. That's what they wanted. To be able to carry on. To be able to fulfill their commission. To go forth with boldness, with clarity, with power, with pathos, all that they might be enabled to win them to Christ. That's what they asked for, that they would be able to speak thy word, not their own opinions, not their thoughts, but the word of God. This is a prayer, friends, we need to adopt this must be a prayer that's heard at all our prayer meetings. A prayer for the Lord to behold their threatenings and to grant boldness to the people of God. And again, this applies to the, uh, the private Christian. It's not just for the, the office bearers. It's not just for the preacher, although it's important for him. But you too need boldness. When persecution comes your way, you need boldness. Not to be an affront to anyone, but you need boldness to stand firm. Because it's very tempting when persecution comes to succumb to it and to hide, as it were. We are to stand, hold our ground. Well, Thirdly and finally, we have power. Verse 31, And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. The Lord heard their prayer. The work was going to go on. Persecution would come again. But they were going to go forth. And with boldness, and with clarity, with love, with grace, they were going to go forth, and they were going to continue to bring this message to the people of Israel, to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. They were not going to be deterred. And God had given them power. And that's what we need. And we cannot manufacture it. It just cannot be done. You don't get this at a seminary or a college. This comes down from heaven itself. This is heavenly. This is what we must plead for. 
in this wicked and corrupt generation. In this generation that is abandoned or seeking to abandon Christianity. Just like it was in the first century. It wasn't easy for them. It's not going to be easy for us. Persecution will come. What's going to be our response? Prayer. And we hope and we trust God's response will be power. That we would be able to continue to declare something. And it can only be something of the unsearchable riches of Christ. Persecution, prayer, and power. May the Lord bless his word.